This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Smith. And we are continuing with our series in Desiring the Kingdom. This is week 20 as we come to 2 Kings chapter 3. And um, Sam, I'm playing hurt today. I, I, uh, I'm taking one <laughs> for the team. Um, I'm, I'm having the allergy attack to end all allergy attacks today. And uh, I, they had to shoot me up with nasal spray, folks, just nasal spray. But they had to shoot me up to get me in the game. But I'm in, coach. I'm, I'm playing hurt today. So if I sound congested, it's because I am. So Second Kings chapter 3, we come to the story of yet another battle. Sam, why don't you kind of set the stage for us? What's going on here? So when we come to the beginning of Second Kings 3, this is going to be the first full chapter where Elisha does not have uh, his mentor, Elijah, uh, the one who had walked with him. He'd been watching what it means to be a prophet. He'd been learning from him. Uh, and so Elijah has been taken up to heaven. Elisha is now carrying the mantle of a prophet. And so you get a a story going on here where Moab rebels and starts exercising some of its muscles, showing that they're going to revolt against the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah. And so just to gain some understanding of what's going on here, go all the way back to King David and King Solomon when they grew the kingdom of Israel, that it not only encompassed the promised land, but it also brought certain kingdoms under them as vassals that paid taxes back to Jerusalem and the king. And a couple of those will be Edom, which will be in the story. That is the kingdom that's south of the Dead Sea. And also Moab, which is a kingdom that was east of the Dead Sea. And so both of those were under Israel's control when the kingdom split. And when the kingdom split, we get the idea that the northern kingdom of Israel was over the land of Moab. And the southern kingdom of Judah had kind of ownership over uh, the kingdom of Edom. And so they were vassal states paying taxes. And after watching Ahab and all the calamity that Israel fell into in the last several chapters that we've been reading, uh, this king Misha, who is over the land of Moab, comes along and says, you know, look, Israel is falling apart at the seams. Like, now's our time. We're no longer going to be under them. Let's revolt. And it's not just that they're claiming their independence. They actually, we know this historically, they actually go on a campaign to try and conquer cities in both Israel and Judah. We've talked about this uh, in in prior weeks, but let's kind of let people also just know who the Moabites were because there's a, they're like, sort of like cousins to Israel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when if you go all the way back way to, back <laughs> way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis 19 there's the story where uh, Abraham's nephew Lot is living in Sodom and God is going to come because Sodom had done some really terrible things. They were wicked. They were engaged in all kinds of really really vile things. I mean, they were raping 
guests to the town, men that were actually angels seeking to rape them. I mean, they were just a corrupt culture, and so God gives Abraham permission uh, to to rescue Lot. And so these angels come to Lot's house, say, hey, we're going to take you out of here, um, and then they destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, as Lot is leaving, he has two daughters. He loses his wife in the whole story, if you read it. And he goes off with two daughters, and they're out of the city, and there's no one with them. They're off in the wilderness, and his daughters decide, you know what, we're going to get dad drunk, and we'll take advantage of him so that we can have children. Pretty pretty disturbing. Well, one of the daughters gets impregnated and names the son Moab, and the Moabites are out of this lineage. It's a shameful, incestuous lineage of where this young woman took advantage of her, of her father. But they are related, they're related, correct. Yeah, yeah. So they would have been, you know, distant cousins. Right. But they would have the Moabites would have been shameful to yeah. other cultures for that reason. Okay. So it's uh, so the Israelites probably saw themselves as kind of righteous, you know, in subjugating the Moabites because they're shameful, mm-hmm. and the Moabites probably always resented that because hey, aren't we kind of like you? You know, we're we're there's the same blood in our veins, kind mm-hmm. of thing. So. The Edomites, the other characters of the story, they come from the descendants of Esau. So if Abraham's grandsons are Jacob and Esau, mm-hmm. and Esau is going to be the one who like just despises God and his promises, and it, it, it doesn't go well for him, his descendants will be the Edomites. And so they too are kind of distant cousins mm-hmm. from the Israelites. So we come to verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 3, and it sets the stage for us. It says, in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah – Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. So why don't we tell people what's going on here? I mean, obviously, Ahab, we've talked about super wicked, like he was the guy that Mm -hmm. said— Forget about Yahweh. Let's just worship Baal. He was completely mm-hmm. wicked in every respect. But it says that that Jehoram wasn't that bad. Instead, he was kind of like Jeroboam. So what does what's going on there? So where where Ahab came along and said, "Don't worship Yahweh. We're going to worship Baal and Asherah." Mm-hmm. Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern king after Israel split into two. Mm-hmm. Uh, he came along and said, we're going to worship all gods kind of in this big soup. <laughs> you know, we're going <laughs> to worship Yahweh. We're going to worship Baal. We're going to worship all of them. And we're going to believe that Yahweh is is here in the form of these two golden calves. And so we're going to worship these two, you know, structures. I mean, so he brought what was called syncretism into the northern kingdom where you basically just throw all the gods together and we worship them all. Which, of course, as we know from the Ten Commandments, is not something God likes. You shall have no other gods before me, you know? <laughs> you know, one of the crazy things, when I was over in Israel, so this says the pillar of Baal, which is kind of weird, you know, but it's literally like a stone is what it's talking about. And when you go up modern day, they've excavated Dan, which is where one of the, the golden calves was, mm-hmm. you know, in the northern part of Israel. And there, they have these stones that they have recovered from around altars, and one of them is one of these little pillar-looking things, and it's just a big rock. And it looks kind of like a big donut almost, except the the middle's not hollow. Mm -hmm. 
And this is what they this is where they went and they would sit before a rock like this and they would worship it as, you know, the the presence of Baal almost. Mm-hmm. And so they literally would sit in front of pillars and believe that Baal's spirit or his essence was contained inside this rock and they would worship and they had rocks for Asherah and they had a rock for El um, that were up there and, you know, they're claiming that's what these rocks were, which, you know, they're archaeologists, so they're smarter than me. So it's interesting, but you're looking at a rock going, really? This is all the big fuss? <laughs> Doesn't look impressive to me. Uh, what this is telling us then is that Jehoram probably thought that he was being okay. Like, hey, look, I got rid of the, of the pillar of Baal. I'm saying worship whoever you like. I'm not telling you to worship Baal. I'm not telling you to worship Yahweh. You know, like Jeroboam, I'm saying, Worship, worship them both. You know, why, why just have one God? So I think that it, he probably in his own mind thought that he was doing the right thing, you know, by getting rid of the pillar of Baal mm-hmm. and letting people do as they wish. Um, he probably thought he was righteous or, or okay, a good guy mm-hmm. is what I'm saying. Uh, but that's not what the Lord thought. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> so uh, then we come to verse four. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a 100,000 lambs and the wool of a 100,000 rams. So this kind of goes with, to what you were saying, which is Moab was essentially funding Israel. Mm-hmm. Like they were having to pay tribute to Israel to avoid trouble, to avoid being mm-hmm. attacked by Israel. Like they were a vassal. It's just the way that things worked all over the ancient world. You had these vassals. I mean, it was like that's how Jerusalem was during the days of Jesus. It was under the control of Rome, but they could have their own regional leaders so long as they didn't upset Rome and so long as they paid taxes to Rome, they could live in peace. Mm-hmm. And so that was the situation in Moab. Mm-hmm. Same thing. It says, but when Ahab died, verse 5, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. He saw some weakness there. Mm -hmm. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel, got everybody together, all the men that could fight. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he, that would be Jehoshaphat, said, I will go. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. And (laughs) when I read that, of course, my mind, you know, jumps back to first Kings 22, which we were just were talking about a couple weeks ago, where Ahab asked him the same question and got the same answer. And Mm -hmm. Sam, I was reading this. I'm thinking this is like this bad sequel to a horror movie (laughs) where the hero who survived the first film all of a sudden is wandering toward the barn where the sound of the chainsaws are coming from. And you're like, no, (laughs) you know, he's making these bad mistakes again, kind of thing. This looks like a good door to walk in. Yeah. You're like, (laughs) what are you thinking? You know, Jehoshaphat, come on. You just went through this, but it really is like, he says the same thing and he's making Mm -hmm. the same mistake. I, it's boggling. It's mind boggling. And I think the Spirit has inspired this story to be told in that way so that we don't miss it. He's doing the same folly all over again. Um, and so in the last time, you remember, they brought forth all these prophets and say, yes, you're going to have success. But one prophet, Jehoshaphat's like, oh, I don't trust your prophets, Ahab. Why don't we get some some different prophets? And you have Micaiah who comes forward and says, it's not going to go well for you if if you go. And Jehoshaphat still goes and he suffers the consequences of it. 
And so now that you're coming to almost the identical situation after the, the humiliation of that last defeat, you think it'd be first and foremost on the front of Jehoshaphat's mind, I want to make sure the Lord is in the, this time. He's like, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, does, he doesn't even ask in advance. You know, he doesn't say, oh, well, hey, that's fine, Jehoram, but let's make sure we talk to the prophets of God. Just right away, he's like, hey, I'm ready to go. Uh, it is something that, you know, I think that, as you were saying, that the Holy Spirit wants us to know this because one of the things I think that, that puzzles us sometimes is that we're puzzled by the fact that we fall into the same traps again. I, I know I have been. I'm like, mm-hmm. God, like, I just don't learn the lessons, Lord. You know, it's like I, I, this is where I tripped up and stumbled up last time. And I think that what God wants us to know is that all of us have certain weaknesses, and part of it is to be able to recognize our weaknesses and to be able to guard against that. I mean, Jehoshaphat right there should have had somebody next to him that says, listen, if anybody comes down from Israel and asks me to help them, it's your job to, like, step on my toe and slap my <laughs> cheek and say, think what you're doing here, you know? Yep. Um, and, and he didn't. You know, I mean, his weakness was trying to help Israel. Uh, just like, you know, my weakness is carrot cake or something. And I don't mean to make light of it because carrot cake isn't sinful unless you eat the whole thing like I've been known to do. But it's, it is a, what I'm saying is we think we have things, you know, that trip yeah. us up and we fall into the same traps again and again. And I think God wants us to see that we have to be aware of where our weaknesses are. And Jehoshaphat mm-hmm. clearly wasn't. Yeah. And I mean, the first time when this is going on and the prophet Micaiah comes along and says, don't do it, you're going to face destruction. You know, the reason for that was that the king of Israel did not want to hear what he didn't want to hear. He wanted to hear only that his way was best. Right. And so he gets angry when this prophet comes forward and says, uh, you know what, you're, you're going to lose. You're going to lose badly. He gets angry. And so now Jehoshaphat's going into this, and I think he's already got his mind made up yeah. to where he just doesn't ask God. He doesn't want to be in rebellion, so he prefers to go in blind. Yeah. La, 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 la. God didn't tell me not to yeah. go. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting also just the background of who these Moabites are. Mm-hmm. So generations, many, many, many centuries after the Moabites were you know, founded out of Lot's children, um, you have – they worship this god called Shamash. And Shamash was a god that was known to require child sacrifice. And so Moab, which was common all through this region, it's really terrible. The Ammonites did it. Some of the some of the northern kingdom kings did it. After this, some of the kings of Judah, like Manasseh, will sacrifice a son in the fires. But the god of Moab, Shamash, required child sacrifice. It was really terrible. It was awful and horrible. Um, but in this, this king that we're reading about, it's not just in the Bible, and I love archaeology if, if you didn't already know that. Mm-hmm. But there's something called the Misha Stone, and it's an ancient record of precisely what we're reading here in Second Kings 3. And I'll re- read you just one small portion in here because this is coming from the hand of this king Misha or chiseled at his command. It says Omri. Now, Omri is the father of Ahab. He writes, Omri – was the king of Israel, and he oppressed Moab for many days, and Shamash was angry with his land, and his son succeeded him. So that would have been Ahab. And he said, he too, I will oppress Moab. In my days he did so, but I looked down on him and on his house, and Israel has gone to ruin. 
Yes, it has gone to ruin forever. And then the rest of the stone is talking about his rebellion and how he went after Israel and Judah. It's really fascinating. So there is historical archaeological verification and validation of, of this chapter that we're reading, which is just – it's an encouragement to the faith. It's, mm-hmm. it's really cool. This is a real guy. We talk about that a lot that, you know, one of the things from, from years back, I mean, I remember I was, you know, I'm a little bit older and I remember that in the, in the 1970s when I was first introduced to faith, you know, on a personal level, grew up in church, but, but became really like interested in the Bible that, um, one of the things that was true back then, 50, you know, 40, 50 years ago, was that the Bible was criticized in the Old Testament for some of the things that it said. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that they, these were being pointed out as errors in the mm-hmm. Bible. It's proof that the Bible isn't the inspired word of God because it mentions these people over here. And yeah, we like know the these – Like the Hittites. These people didn't exist until archaeological, you know – Capabilities expanded. They got better at their digs and yeah. and better equipment and 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 more investment. And all of a sudden, it's like the Bible is just getting smarter and smarter over the years. <laughs> it is pretty funny how that happens. It's it's wonderful actually, and it just seems to be accelerating. Yeah, um, it really is. It's, yeah. it's it's a lot of fun to watch. So it's you know one of these things, folks. When you when you read a lot of these stories in the Old Testament, and you think that can't be right. You know, the Bible is being proven right when it describes the conflicts between these ancient peoples. Mm-hmm. We're finding evidence that these people these people existed and that they had the conflicts as was recorded in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So so we come to verse 8, and here I'm, we're getting ready to uh, take a, a little dig at our favorite uh, ESV translation again. Uh, then he said, by which way shall we march? It's Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom, and neither you nor I really think that's Jehoram no. that answered. Um, yeah, the Hebrew word there, it doesn't say Jehoram's name. And right. m- most of the translations just put he. That is the correct translation. That's what the word is. The word the, says The he. Hebrew there is who? Who means he in Hebrew? And so it's, by which way shall we march? He answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. So you don't know if it's Jehoram or Jehoshaphat. We can't say definitively that it's one or the other, but it makes way more sense for a whole lot of reasons that it's Jehoshaphat who's laying down the military strategy here. And, you know, we've – that's one of the things that when when you talk about – Bible translation to the English, it's these interpretive choices. It's like somebody who was translating this verse looked at the Hebrew word there, who, as you said, and thought, all right, well, we're going to help people understand what's going on here. We think it's Jehoram that was speaking. And then they translated it that way. Um, and so interpretive choice tends to creep in a lot in it's one of the it's one of the reasons why that's what's kind of important about knowing you know which translation you're using about how how formal the equivalence is do they make those kinds of interpretive choices or do they just translate the word that's there and allow you to learn from context or make your own decisions um and i would be i would prefer that they just translate the word that's there I agree rather than so, giving me the interpretive so for people choice. who are listening cuz you are the bible translation expert of this podcast <laughs> so people who are listening where would you point them first for a bible translation that's really good at being disciplined at not making those choices for you. Um, I, you know, my favorite translation is the New King James Version, um, which is an update to the King James Version. Uh, New King James Version is a very literal, formally equivalent 
uh, translation. And for example, in this verse, it translated as he. Um, and when we talked about last week, the, uh, the small boys, and we were saying we don't think they were small boys in that story about Elisha and the bears, um, it, New King James translated as youths. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does, there is an indication of, of, of age of them being young, mm-hmm. but there's nothing that says small boys. Um, so I like the New King James Version. I also like the New American Standard Bible for the same reason. Um, I also like the fact that both the New King James and the New American Standard Bible, when they supply a word, when the translators add a word to make it read more smoothly, and you know you have mm-hmm. to do that mm-hmm. because Hebrew and Greek do not read like English does. So they have to supply words. So when there is a translator-supplied word in the NKJV or the New American Standard that is not in the original text, they italicize it. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate knowing this word is not in the original text. And so right. if that word is suddenly somehow important to the verse, I can know that somebody is making a choice for me, and I yeah. might not agree with that. So so if I were going to say what translation would I read, I'm a New King James or New American Standard guy. I think they're more literal and less – they take less interpretive liberties. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. So – uh, but I like the New King James most of all just because it reads a lot like the King James. You know, it's got that same sort of, you know, majesty or formal way of, of reading, of putting sentences together. And because I sort of cut my teeth on the King James, it's like the King James, but there's fewer these and thous. Um, <laughs> and, and as a matter of fact, one of the reasons that our church has been using the ESV uh, was that the Reformation Study Bible which is a study Bible we like very well that was done by, uh, well, it's Reformation Trust, but it's Ligonier. It's R.C. Sproul was a general editor. It's a very good Reformed you know, theology study Bible. And it was available at the time that we made the choice only in the ESV. But the latest version of it, the 2016 revision of it, is in the New King James Version. The very mm-hmm. latest Reformation study Bible that you can get is a New King James. Yeah. So, um, so at any rate, I would just – I would that tell to you, say two things. Yes, Mark and I may or may not be campaigning for a switch to the New King James Version. <laughs> or the New American Standard. I know Pastor Tom is a New American Standard Bible fan. Uh, the one thing about the New American Standard Bible is they just underwent another major revision to the NASB 2020 edition. And one of the things they did, honestly, a little irritating to me, is they really kind of doubled down on some of the gender neutral stuff. And when that's appropriate, like brothers and sisters in the new Testament, when it's obviously is, you know, talking to everybody, I've got no problem with it, but I don't like it to be forced. I don't like them to say anytime, be the text, let the text be the text. And so, um, I, you know, the, the, New American Standard 1995 edition or the 1977 mm-hmm. edition, a little less in that vein. Um, a very interesting Bible that will be coming out is the Legacy Standard Bible, which is a revision of the New American Standard that's being headed up by the Master Seminary. That's John MacArthur and crew. And while I sometimes disagree with Dr. MacArthur's style on, well, almost everything, on the other hand, he's a brilliant scholar when it comes to Bible languages. And he has some really good people at Master Seminary. So Legacy Standard Bible will be a very interesting one when that one comes out later this year or first part of next year. Uh, so that's a, that's, that's one to watch. But, um, one of the things I like about the New King James, Sam, is that they don't fiddle with it. It came out, it was finished in 1982, <laughs> and it's, and it's been the same since then. If we're talking about the ESV or the New American Standard, 
Which one are we talking about? The ESV came out in 2001. And then in 2007, it was recopyrighted because it had had so many significant changes. And then there was a 2010 and a 2011 revision. And then a 2016 copyright again because they changed so much. And it's just like, which version are we talking about? Same thing with the New American Standard. Is it a 1977, a 1995, a 2020? Is it the legacy standard variation of it? What are we talking about? When I talk about the New King James Bible, I'm talking about one Bible, one version. That's it. Once it was done, it was done. Uh, and I like that. Finish your translation. And if you need to make another one later on, that's fine. But stop fiddling around once you and and i understand you got to make corrections the king james bible when it came out they made corrections from 1769 all the way to the early you know into the 1800s and even to the early 1900s they were fixing typographical errors and things like that that's fine again the new king james its first copyright was 1979 and they fixed it a couple times with errors and type you know problems that they found but once they had that kind of early you know twist fixing up stuff done then they left it alone they didn't come back to it and say hey i think that we should make this change so anyway that's the other point that i, was I have no say. idea if any of this is going to stay in because it's really long-winded but <laughs> i will tell you this was the subject of my first week of my essentials class which was how can we know that we have accurate copies of the scriptures and we can rely on the manuscripts and what are you know what are the differences between some of these bible translations um and that video i mean it's not generally available it's only for people that took the class but if people if you're interested in this kind of bible translation talk i can give you access to that video and i talked about it for an hour and 15 minutes so nice yeah the second point i was going to make is I, I forget if it was you or who it was, but that question was which which Bible should I get, and the, the answer is whichever one you'll read. That's my standard answer. <laughs> whichever one you will read, yes, yeah, and that's true because these kinds of things, like we we nerd out on this and say it, oh, it's Trinity, not Jehoram, but in, at the end, it's not it's not changing any major doctrine. Right. It's nothing essential about salvation here. So these are minor little squabbles that help you study the text a little better, right? Um, they're not major. So if you're reading the NIV, if you're reading the ESV, you don't have to feel scared that you're reading some <laughs> you know, right. some terrible, heretical Bible. No. It's just minor decisions like this that are annoying. But if you listen to the Out of Water podcast, we're assuming you might be on the cusp of becoming a Bible nerd <laughs> like Sam and I. And so we nerd out over these kinds of things. I, I will say this. If I'm going to do a lot of reading, especially in the Old Testament where things can be – awkwardly worded at times. I tend to read in the New International Version. I think the New International Version is a really good balance between readability and general accuracy. I don't study from it. Yeah. When I'm studying the passage, I go back to my New King James. But when I'm reading, you know, because I want to sit down sometimes and just read to get the big mm -hmm. picture, the overall view, um, I tend to grab a New International Version. I think it's a very readable and and generally accurate translation generally accurate so so anyway <laughs> back to the text today we both think it was jehoshaphat who said by the will by the way of the wilderness of edom because edom was a vassal state to to judah not israel and to go through there you had to go through the territory of judah right. then through edom a vassal state of judah and by the way, you're you're talking about a king of Israel coming in, Jehoram, who's new to this. Jehoshaphat is the one who has some some battle experience under his belt. It would sure. make sense for him to be the one steering the strategy. 
Well, and in addition to that, we're about to find out here in verse 9 that they're going to pick up the king of Edom and his army also. Mm-hmm. They would not have come along. I mean, it's obviously that Jehoshaphat is doing – to me, it's obvious the king of Judah is doing this because he can go into Edom and say, hey, gather up your troops and come with us. we got a mm-hmm. battle to fight. The, the, king of e- the king of Edom was a deputy, mm-hmm. it says, to the, to the king of Judah. So, and, and here's the other thing, by the way, let me just say this, verse 9 supports what you and I were just saying, because look how this is translated. So the king of Israel went with mm-hmm. the king of Judah and the king of Edom. Yeah. That makes it sound like Jehoram is okay. like, yeah, Jehoram is following behind Jehoshaphat going, whatever you say, I, I, I'm good. We're going <laughs> to fight Moab, right? You're gonna, we're, we're, we're taking care of my battle, Moab? Okay. All right. I'm, I'm back here. So. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, which, by the way, <clears throat> one more, <laughs> this is these are moments in time where I really love the old King James translation. The King James here says, "And when they had fetched a compass," <laughs> <laughs> which is such a great sixteen eleven term. Uh, it's a nautical term, and it actually means that they had basically gone in an arc or a circular uh, movement. So this this doesn't mean that they'd wandered lost. You know, they, when they made a circuitous march of seven days, mm-hmm. what we think or what you were saying, because you preached this on Sunday, don't you, you? You think they marched around the bottom of the Dead Sea, right? Mm-hmm. That's what my guess is. Yeah. So the whole the whole battle strategy is if if you look at the nation of Israel way to the north you have the Sea of Galilee. From the Sea of Galilee you have the Jordan River that flows down, and it runs into a much bigger Dead Sea, and it's the lowest spot on the face of the earth, super salty, nine times the salinity of the ocean in the wow. Dead Sea. There's no life there. Everything goes dead. And so for sure, the Moabites are expecting them to come from the northern side of the Dead Sea because Moab is on the eastern coast of the Dead Sea. So they're expecting the the armies to come from the north. And Jehoshaphat's like, man, nobody will expect us to go to the south of the Dead Sea and come up around from the bottom and attack them from the south. And so he thinks he's going to have this great, you know, military strategic victory. And so the circuitous march is the the ark that's coming i think coming up underneath the dead sea and after seven days marching there they run into some problems yeah now that's a pretty you you showed a picture of that on sunday that's some pretty inhospitable territory yeah Yeah. i mean it's it is sand and rocks there's not much there unless you come to like between mountains, they come together in what are called wadis, which are dried up riverbeds. And so when they do get rain, it turns into a flash flood. There's no grass. There's no trees to absorb any of the water. It just races down, hits the crevice, the wadi, and then races to the Dead Sea or wherever it's going. And that's the idea. The only thing you see there are these acacia trees. They're like the camels of, of plant life. And, and they can take a little bit of water from these, this occasional precipitation, but they, they will, you'll only find them in these wadis. Huh. It's the only life that you'll see for miles upon miles upon miles of nothing but desert rock and sand. So that's what they were encountering when it says there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Verse 10, then the king of Israel said, alas, 
The Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hands of Moab. Let me translate that for you. This is the king of Israel going, we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And it's God's fault. It's yep. Yahweh's fault. It he is. did this to us. The Lord has done this to us. In yep. verse 11, it says, and Jehoshaphat suddenly remembers that there is a God, you know, in Israel and in Judah here. The Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through, through whom we may inquire of the Lord? <laughs> I, you know, if I'm going to tell you something, let's, let's be honest here. How many of us forget God until we find ourselves in bad circumstances? And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, man, the, you know, the old saying, there's no atheists in foxholes. It's like when, when it begins, you've heard that saying, right? I'm not oh, the yeah. only, I'm not the yeah. only one that's heard that, right? I'm not too old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know the situation is that when when this when things go bad man everybody yeah. whoa we're turning to the lord we're asking the lord for help instead of seeking god first and going yeah. as he leads we get ourselves into trouble and we're like lord lord bail us out mm-hmm. and the thing that you have to realize this this was actually helpful for me when i was envisioning this they're 7 days into a march into a territory where there's no water and there hasn't been water for many many miles and so at the bottom of this, all now they're all entering into dehydration. They're on the verge of death, and they're faced with only two options that you could see through human eyes, right? Right. We either turn back, and we go back miles and miles and miles, and hope that we don't die on the way with no water. Right. Or we continue marching, and we go into battle in this weakened state in the hope that we might be able to take some of the wells of the Moabites to get water, but we're all decimated and weak. So in this condition, we're all, you know, we're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no matter – if we press forward, we're going to die because we don't have the strength to win this battle. And if we turn back, we're probably going to die because we'd have to march days without water. And you know you can't live that long without water. Right. You know, it's it's only days that you can live without water. Right. And so they're in a very bad position. And so uh, it says, then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. I, I guess that would mean what? That he was his servant, right? Who poured water yeah, on the hands of Elijah? Servant, is, yeah. that like a, is that what that phrase means? Yeah. So, I mean, that, you, that stays true going into the New Testament. Like when, when John the Baptist is talking about Jesus and he says, I'm not worthy to, to unstrap his sandals, that, mm-hmm. was the, that was one of the roles of a servant was to unstrap the sandals and pour water on the feet to clean them as they come into a house. And okay. so what it's saying is Elisha is a servant, was a servant of Elijah. Okay. He poured water. And so then verse 12, and Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. You know, it's interesting because – I was going to ask you this. I, one of the commentaries that I was reading on this passage when I was breaking it down for study notes suggested that Elisha had to kind of sort of generally have gone with them because they were mm-hmm. seven days march out from things and you, they couldn't march back for the reasons you said they would have died on the way. And it, and they went down to Elisha. It's like they didn't, you know, they going up would have taken them into battle against Moab because they were coming up from the south mm-hmm. of Moab. So somebody was the one commentary was suggesting that this really kind of indicates that that they had brought Elisha with them. Mm-hmm. He may, you know, he yeah, wasn't it, right there in in their meeting, but he was close by. Yeah, right there in verse eleven, it says one of the king of Israel's servants said, "Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here." here. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
So, so he's with them. Now, whether or not – we don't know if he's coming as a soldier fighting for his homeland, which is an interesting thought, mm-hmm. or if God's like – just hang along. They'll eventually come to you. You know, <laughs> they're eventually going to realize they might want my opinion on things. So just tag along. You know, but in either case, he's with them. Yeah, it's like the the word of the spirit of the Lord came to Elisha and said, "Listen, you're going to have an opportunity to do what I told you. So <laughs> follow all those guys out the gate." So, so the yeah. king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Verse thirteen. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, "What have I to do with you?" Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. That had to feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, that's boldness. It is boldness because you're talking to the king, right? And in those Mm -hmm. days, the king could have you killed just because he didn't like the color of the shirt you were wearing. And his father had done that to a lot of the prophets of Yahweh. Yes. And, uh, and, And his mother had had so credibly threatened Elijah that mm-hmm. Elijah freaked out and ran away. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and what he's telling them there, obviously, go get is, Baal's opinion. Exactly. On this. He's saying, go he, ask. He's Baal. done so well for you. Yeah. Go and see what does Baal think. How about that? Uh, <laughs> but the king of Israel said to him, "No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings once again to give them into the hand of Moab." So once again. Jehoram is blaming God for their circumstances. So it's it's not. Remember what Elijah Elisha says is, "Hey, go to go to Baal and Asherah." And the king of Israel's response, Joram's response is, "No, no, no. It's Yahweh's fault. He's the one who called these three kings to give them into the hands of Moab." So he gets defensive. Yeah, it's Yahweh's fault, not Baal and Asherah. And he's and he's blaming Yahweh for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Totally. Verse fourteen. And Elisha said, "As the Lord of hosts live." Before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, who was, as we've said, is generally a good king, Mm -hmm. I would neither look at you nor see you. (laughs) Again, bold. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wouldn't come before you if you called me. Like, that's bold. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that is. I mean, he's telling – he frankly, he puts Jehoram in his place. And Jehoram (laughs) doesn't have a lot of options at this point. And there's there's a couple things here. Just the the dy- I brought this out in in the sermon, but I love the dynamic that you really do have two types of people when they come to the problems, and one is the finger pointing at God, and I want nothing to do with Him when you're in the middle of crisis. But Jehoshaphat, it's when he's in crisis that he's like, I need to get close to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a recognition that it's you know. There's safety near the Lord, mm-hmm. you know, when you love Him, even when you're in the midst of crisis. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. Yeah, it's a draw near, don't run away, draw near. And I really love what Elisha says next in verse 15. Elisha says, "But now bring me a musician." And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And that verse, mm-hmm. uh, I, when I was first looking at this passage, immediately that verse resonated with me because. I believe that what Elisha was saying here is, I need to block out all these voices. I need to block all you guys out. I need to block out my own busy thoughts. I need to have music playing so that I can quiet mm-hmm. my mind and hear from the Lord. And, and, and you may be somebody out there thinking, hey, quiet is quiet. I'm like, not for all of us, it's not. For some of <laughs> us, quiet 
isn't quiet. Our, our thoughts are busy. They're jumbled. And having something like music can, can be calming and centering and allows our thoughts to stop skipping all over the place. And it actually permits us to focus. I was thinking in this case about David and Saul, right? Saul mm-hmm. would get tormented and upset and whatever kinds of mental demons he had, he would call for for uh, David to come play for him. And when David would come and play music for him, it would calm Saul down. He became, yeah, I mean, occasionally he'd throw a spear at David's head, but it would calm, <laughs> you know, I mean, he did do that. <clears throat> but it would calm him down and from the, you know, from the, the anguish, mental anguish that he was having. So mm-hmm. I just really identified with this because quite frankly, I do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I put music on sometimes when I need to think or mm-hmm. to hear from someone, you know. But the the times where I've had the the most special moments with the Lord, like I mean, I'm a, I'm a nerd. I love studying. I love seeing brilliant, beautiful things in the Word of God. But there's something that music can pull out of my soul that study can't, meditation mm-hmm. can't, even prayer can't. You mm-hmm. know, like the times when I've been reduced to tears at just the awesome beauty of God, uh, man, almost all of them are accompanied by, you know, uh, music, worship, something that's playing that draws it out of me. And, you know, I think God recognizes that. When he gives us the Psalms, it's 150 different chapters in a book that he's given to us to pray, and it's set to music. There's a reason for that. He has, he has made our hearts to worship him, you know, and music, he's he's put it in us. It evokes things out of us that just ordinary words can't. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, it's just a, it's a beautiful thing, I think, mm-hmm. that Elisha said, bring me a musician. Um, uh, for everybody that's had these experiences that, that knows what we're talking about. You know, the other thing, too, is that I, I think back to Elijah um, when he was, when he had fled from Jezebel, and it says that the Lord, uh, told him to come out and stand on the mountain, which he didn't do. He stayed in the cave, but then mm-hmm. there was this tremendous storm and this fire and this earthquake. And the Bible says to us that the Lord was not in the fire, wasn't in the storm, he wasn't in the earthquake. But then there was this, King James, still small voice, still love that. The ESV said low whisper, but a quiet voice. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Lord was. The Lord could get our attention in dramatic ways. If he wants to shake the foundations of the earth, he can do that. If God wants to get your attention, he literally can, you know, he can turn the world upside down to get your attention if he wants to. But that's not how God chooses to come to us in most situations, the Lord is coming to us quietly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that the first thing that you have to do to be able to hear that quiet voice of the Lord is quiet your own thoughts and quiet mm-hmm. your own busyness and shut your own mouth. You know, I abhor silence. If you're not talking, <laughs> I will talk. Um, and that's bad sometimes for mm-hmm. conversation. I it, it, There are times where I'll have a conversation with somebody and I know that person needs to talk more than they need to listen. Mm-hmm. And Sam, I've got to sit there going, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up to myself. It's like <laughs> a constant thing in my head. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Just listen. Just listen. Just listen. Um, because my natural tendency is if your mouth closes, my mouth opens. Um, and so there are times when you just need to shut up. And for mm-hmm. me, again, I guess going back, that's I put music on. And when I put music on, 
I hear the quiet voice, you know, yeah. and I don't I don't run my own mouth. You know? Yeah, it's always fascinating when you when you look at prayers throughout the Bible that people offer up when they are in serious turmoil. You know, they do some talking. You know, they'll go before the Lord and say, how long and this is happening and that is happening and I feel this way or that way. You find it in the Psalms all over the place. But where they find peace is when they shut up and they begin to reflect on what God has said and what God has done. And they just listen and meditate and reflect on what, you know, how God has been faithful in the past. They bring up the word of God and they listen to the Lord and they're reminded of how precious they are. Mm -hmm. That's when they find some relief from their circumstances is when they stop shouting and stop talking and just listen and reflect yeah. You know, there's always more power in God's voice than mine, yes. <laughs> you know. And so in prayer, it's not just about blah, 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 blah. But it's shut up for a minute and let him talk to you. Yeah. You reflect on what he has already said right. to you. Which is why sometimes when it's time to pray, it's also time again to put some music on because yeah. you need to be able to just shut up. You know? So the word of the Lord now has come to Elisha. Let's see what he says. Verse 16, and he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. All right, I'm going to stop again and say it. The ESV got this wrong. (laughs) I agree. Um, Virtually every other major translation, New American Standard, New King James, King James, all the other translations I looked at, or most of them, let me just say most of them, all said there's a command here. The Lord is telling them, make this. The I will isn't there. It's make this dry stream bed full of pools. The Lord is telling them, Go out there and and dig ditches, basically. And the, mm-hmm. the New King James actually says that. Make this full of ditches. Go out there and dig. You know, dig some holes in the ground because, like you said, just you know, you were explaining how the water moves through here. When the water moves through here, it races past. You've got no opportunity to really water your animals or collect any water. I mean, it's flowing at speed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's gone. And what God is telling them is, I need you to do something first. I need you to go out there and dig holes in dry ground to show, to demonstrate that you believe I'm going to bring water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's that's just it. And it applies so much to your life. You know, this is I remember somebody who used to work at the school um, talking to me about the importance of just filling your brain with scripture, even when things are good, because it's it's when you're digging, it's when you're doing the hard work, it's when you're filling your brain and your heart with the promises of God. You don't know when that flash flood is going to come and fill all of it with meaning and purpose when you're going to need to draw on those Uh, for what you can't see right now. So verse 17, uh, Elisha continues, For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, so you're not going to see the source of it, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. And this is an interesting thing that he says, verse 18, he goes, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. It's easy, you know. Here's a Now here's a heavier thing. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. So God's going to bless them in the battle. God's going to fight the battle with them or for them. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. So he's telling them basically go in there and nuke the joint. I mean, it's like he's, he's mm-hmm. giving them instructions about, you know, chopping down trees and stopping up water and, and putting stones on land that would grow things. Um, the Lord is, is, sounds like the Lord is judging Moab here. 
Yeah, it, and what it's doing is it makes them unable to turn around and do a return strike quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that's the idea. Like weaken them to the point where they, they can't retaliate and they're forced back into submission. Yeah. And by the way, the Moabites, some of their customs, like when you look at it, and I'm not saying this is the justification for what's going on here, but they're a wicked, wicked people. Um, some of their practices and, and child sacrifice and, and multiple things that are every bit as despicable like um, they they would have been an awful enemy to have determined to come after you. Yeah. So verse 20, it says, The next morning, about the time of, of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. So the first part of, of God's Prediction or Elisha's reporting of the word of the Lord came to pass. When it says that the water came from the direction of Edom, the idea of that also is not only are you not going to see the source of your rain, but all the water that's coming is coming from the south, from the direction of Edom. And so the Moabites surely wouldn't have seen any storm. They would be totally oblivious that there's going to be water. And we're talking about a region where precipitation is a rare and very big event. You know? So <laughs> – so if there had been water, they would have for sure known about it, and you'll see why that becomes important uh, in the story. And yeah. instead, not even the Israelites or the, the people of Judah, the armies of Judah see it. It's coming, and we're assuming that it's raining and running down from the mountains of the south toward them as yeah. they're closer to the Dead Sea. Yeah. So verse 21, when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. So they rallied all the troops. Everybody that could hold a sword was there yeah. to fight. Jehoshaphat thinking that he was going to scheme and surprise them. They've <laughs> they've stumbled around in this wilderness so long. Now the Moabites are like, oh, there they are. Yes. <laughs> and meet them at the border. So there's no big surprise. Yeah. Verse 22, and when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water. Now, that's this is an interesting thing. The Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And mm-hmm. somebody's like, if, you, if, if that seems odd to you, again, this is going to come up again because I keep – I live on a lake. <laughs> <laughs> and in the – you know, it's the lake is to the west of my house. So I don't see the sun rise on the water, but I see the sun set on the water. Mm-hmm. And it's the same idea. When the sun comes over the horizon – Okay, it's not bright yellow, white light at that point. It's kind of reddish orange. And the same thing is true when it's setting in the evening. And there's times when I look out on the lake and it does. It looks like, you know, it's red or orange. It doesn't look like water. It looks like a lake full of orange juice or, yeah, even blood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's possible that they just, you know, they saw the sun rising. And like you're saying, they're not expecting water, right? Mm -mm. Yeah. Why is this wet? Right. And it's on this, this, (laughs) this kind of rock clay that has kind of a orangish reddish tone to it. Yeah. And so when they see these rocks and everything else reflecting wet, it's coming back to them with this reddish tone. And they're thinking, you know what? Maybe the Edomites rebelled. Yeah. You know, maybe there was maybe there was some kind of bloodshed that went on. Like, well, let's join in. Let's get them while they're while they're weakened. But they're for sure thinking a battle has happened because everything looks like blood. Yeah, verse twenty three. What you just said, and they said, "This is blood." The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, 
to the spoil. So <laughs> they're expecting something easy. Uh, verse 24, that's not what happens. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities. And on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth. And the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So they've basically backed the Moabites into mm -hmm. like their – it's like – this is like their capital city, right? Mm -hmm. Their last fortified city. Last stand, yeah. Yeah. And they've got them surrounded and then they're attacking the city. And then if you need to know anything about the Moabites, this will tell you about the Moabites. Verse 26, when the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, which probably was the smallest and he thought weakest mm -hmm. army, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place. So this is the prince and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. Up high on the wall of the city where mm -hmm. everybody could see child sacrifice. He burnt his mm -hmm. son. So you and you would treat your sons in this culture much like uh, they would an animal sacrifice. You would you would slit his throat and let him bleed out for all to see. The blood would go forth as an offering, and then you would take him and put him on a funeral pyre or an altar, and you would burn him and to where the smoke would go up as an offering to Shamash, which was their god. And everybody's watching this. So everybody outside the city, you know, he puts it on the wall so that everybody can see it. Everybody yep. inside seeing it, everybody outside seeing it. And it's just absolutely appalling, repulsive. They've, they found some, some, uh, in archaeology, some of the ancient evidence that what they used to do with the statues inside the city when they would worship is they would make these statues out of bronze. And they would light a furnace inside the statue to where, because it's bronze, it would start glowing. And they would think, oh, Shamash or Moloch was the Ammonite god that did the same thing. The, the god is glowing. He's coming to life. And when you set the child in the arms, which were outstretched to the front, because the, the arms were molten metal or, or glowing, they would be malleable and the arms would drop with the weight of the child and drop the child into the fire basin to burn to death. Mm. Um, just horrible, mm. horrible culture. And this was prevalent all throughout this region of the world at the time. And as you, as you pointed out, you know, if you read the rest of, if you read through the books of first and second Kings or first and second Chronicles, where it talks about the different Kings of Israel and Judah, even the Kings of Israel and Judah, were doing this different yeah, two of them two of two of them different kings were where they were you know child sacrifice being practiced among the people of god how far they had fallen yeah um so then it concludes with and there came great wrath against israel and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land and when i i read you know half dozen or so commentaries looking mm -hmm. for ex an explanation of what the great wrath here was and there were three distinct theories one theory was that um that 
arguments broke out within Israel, that within Israel itself, that the, that the, they began to argue amongst themselves about how horrible this was and what, how, what an abomination to the Lord this was, because God was clear, you know, this is a, a horrible abomination. It's absolutely outlawed in his, you know, among his people. Um, the, no equivocation on God's part. It's not like, yeah, they do it. That's their business. He's like, no, you don't. You don't, you don't do this, and if you see it and you allow it, yeah. the Lord said he's going to cut you off from his people. Yeah, and going back to Solomon, we remember he built shrines to the god Shemash. And so Solomon, at the, David would not have allowed this, but Solomon, his son, was like, you know what? International relations, we'll allow it, we'll throw a bone to their god. And all the subsequent kings that that had control over Moab allowed this practice to continue. Even if they didn't endorse it, they allowed it to continue in a territory that was under their control. Yeah, it's and, and in the Levitical law, in, in Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verse 2 through 5 reads, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all, close their eyes to that man. Wow. When he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. Wow. So if you ever want to know, did God tolerate this? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that that explains what what happens in this passage. Yeah. You know, the, the tide turns. Um and if you're wondering who Moloch is, Moloch is the god of the Ammonites. Right. But it's the same. Shamash and Moloch are essentially the same kind of god. The child sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and so, like I said, one theory was that Israel argued amongst themselves. Um, another theory was that uh, that Judah and Edom argued with Israel about it. You know, this is an abomination. This can't happen. And then there was a third interpretation that suggested that perhaps the Lord had turned, you know, that he judged Israel in some respect. Great wrath came against Israel, that the Lord punished them for for this happening. But I guess a question that comes up to me is, all right, Israel didn't do this. Israel didn't burn a child. Judah didn't burn a child. Edom didn't burn a child. It was the Moabites that did it. So it was the other person's sin. It was, it was the, it was Misha's sin. It wasn't the sin of Israel. And yet it's like, it was, it was like, too far. Like it went too far. It's almost like mm-hmm. we're not going to continue to prosecute this war. We're not going to push this any further because if this is where it drives you, if you're going to sacrifice your own children, we will not be the cause of that. Is mm-hmm. that kind of how you feel? I, I think that's I think that's right. And there might be a combination of factors in here. I think part of this might be that there was a rebellion among the people because they were so shocked by this. Yeah. Because um, we know if you read Second Chronicles chapter twenty, that after this, Moab teams up with Edom and others. Edom, remember, is part of the alliance with Judah and Israel here. But by Second Chronicles twenty, Edom then joins with Moab and goes after Judah, and so there's a rebellion of both of them against Judah. Mm-hmm. 
And so I think God might be using that to judge his people for failing to lead on this point. So could it be both? Yeah, I think I think it probably is some kind of a mixture. I think maybe the Edomites are out there looking and saying, oh my gosh, look what's going on with these vassals, you know, and the ranks begin to shift around it. It's, it leaves it vague, and so it allows us to use our imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, but regardless, Israel and Judah had an obligation to put an end to this injustice because they governed over these people. Right. Uh, and so they ultimately, in some sense, hold responsibility in the sight of God. And that passage in Leviticus really stuck out to me because of the fact that it said if they close their eyes to what the other person is doing. Um, and, you know, we talk about things that happen in the world and we're like, you know, why does God allow that or what are we supposed to do about that? And the fact is that the Lord is not tolerant of sin. You know, he, there's never a point where he expects us to, to close our eyes to sin or, or not to stand up for what's right. Um, you know, these kinds of things, these kinds of examples. I mean, obviously child sacrifice is extreme, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't know. Some of the stuff that goes on today, Sam. Yeah. It's kind of on the same level, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it feels Ecclesiastes. You know, there's nothing new under the, nothing there's new under nothing the sun, new yes. under the sun. Yeah, yeah. Um, but and and in this case, it's 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 again true. And this wrath that comes against Israel over a king slaying his son, you know, should provoke our brains to to think of the gospel. You know, that in this case, it's it's a king out of self protection who's making his son suffer so that he can find safety, right? This is what the king of Moab is killing his son so that he can benefit. But in the gospel, you know, and he's looking out at these enemies, you know, but the gospel turns all of that on its head. It's it's God the Father, the king, the one who reigns over all things, who in conjunction with a son in this trinity who loves humanity so much you know, has unfolded this plan by which he is going to, the son is going to take the wrath for all the wickedness of mankind, all the wickedness of mankind. And what does that do? It enables the father to show pleasure and delight in the people who have yeah. warred against him. Yeah. Um, and there's little details in this story, you know, from from the fact that I talked about this in in my sermon that God's mercy, God's deliverance, God's victory always comes on the heel of praises. You see that in Jericho, you see it in Gideon, you see it in Revelation 19 when the climax of redemptive history comes when Jesus comes back. Well, when does he come back? It's after all the saints of heaven and earth and all the angels and elders of heaven are all singing loudly, you know, then comes the victory. Victory comes with singing, but I also love in this passage that when the Moabites look out and they're looking to the enemy camp, in one sense, the camp looks like blood because God has provided life-saving water to the armies of Israel and Judah and Edom. But to the enemies, it looks like the camp is covered in the blood. And there's a real sense of where I wonder if the Spirit of God kind of ordained that because we are covered in the blood. Yeah. You know, and the enemy comes after us at his peril. <laughs> really, like God has achieved a victory. The enemy is going to lose, and we are out there covered in the blood. And when we drink that water, we're never thirsty again. 
That's right. You know, living water. It's and, awesome. You know, it is awesome. And the it says that in this story, the the wrath fell on Israel, and in the gospel, the wrath falls on the sun. Yeah. You know. Well, I think that's a good word, and I think that's a word that we can end on. You know, the, some of these stories are really hard to get through and to to talk through because they are horrifying. Um, the things that the things that happen, but ultimately, I think all of these stories, in some way or another, point us back to the gospel and point us back to Jesus. So we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, that uh, it's been profitable for you. Uh, if you'd like to correspond with us, perhaps you want to tell me why you think I shouldn't pick on the ESV quite so much. I don't know. <laughs> you can send email to us. That's uh, a fight you don't want to pick, people. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I might be a bit of a manuscript nerd. I might. Yeah, I might be. Um, our email address is out of water at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com, which is also where you can find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast by going to riovistachurch.com slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, or on Spotify. And Sam and I will be back next week with yet another in the Desiring the Kingdom story and as we go on to Second Kings chapter 4. Uh, we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.